Hi, I'm Dan Permack, and welcome to Axios Recap, brought to you by the American Beverage Association. Today's Tuesday, November 10th. U.S. COVID cases are way up, tech stocks are down, and we're focused on the future of the gig economy. In the fog of last week's presidential election, you might have missed that California voters were also asked a different question whether gig economy workers should be treated as employees or as independent contractors. By a margin of about 58 to 42, they chose independent contractors. Why it matters is that this basically codifies the gig economy model in California, where companies like Lyft and Uber and DoorDash and Instacart are all based. Had this measure lost, then we might have seen labor organizers try to dismantle the contractor model in other states. Three things to know. First, this ballot measure was called Prop 22 and was bankrolled by hundreds of millions of dollars from gig economy companies, many of which argued that doing business in California would simply become too expensive if they had to treat their drivers as employees. Two, Prop 22 doesn't quite go back to business as usual. Gig economy workers will get some new benefits, like 20% above minimum wage when they're doing so-called engaged work, plus access to some occupational accident and medical insurance. But overall, it's not too much more. Three, Prop 22 can be overturned by the state legislature, but they need a seven-eighths majority, so don't expect it to change. The bottom line is that gig economy companies won, progressive labor organizers lost, and we still haven't had a real national debate on how to treat this burgeoning class of U.S. worker. In 15 seconds, we'll go deeper with Lyft co-founder and president John Zimmer. But first, this. We're joined now by John Zimmer, co-founder and president of Lyft. So John, let me start with the obvious question here. You guys spent a little over $47 million in support of Prop 22. Did you get your money's worth? Look, the way we, we see this is that it's a win-win for drivers, for riders, for the California economy, and, and obviously, yes, for, for Lyft. Drivers, six to one margin, want to remain independent contractors. We're able to do that while also adding historic benefits, uh, including health care subsidy, uh, which drivers deserve. I want to get into those benefits, but before we do, I'm curious, you guys obviously must have gamed out an if-we-lose scenario. Would Lyft have really shut down in California? We looked at multiple scenarios, one being that. That was still something that was on the table. But either way, let's say we had continued to operate, it would have meant 80% of driver jobs going away, those that use this more flexibly uh, versus those that do it more full-time. That's a repercussion we didn't want for the long term. And so whenever we think about decisions, we think about, well, what can we actually do in the next couple months to comply with whatever rules are set forward? And how can we maximize the long-term value for our community and our business? And just to be clear, when you say that 80% of California driver jobs would disappear, are you saying that's because the drivers themselves wouldn't have you know, only worked, say, five hours or 10 hours and thus would have left the platform voluntarily? Or are you saying because you guys wouldn't have been able to afford to keep that many on the platform? What I'm saying is that a little bit of both, frankly, because what would happen is if you follow you know, certain rigid rules of employment, the second you turn on the app, whether or not you're receiving rides, whether or not you're driving for other platforms, we would be paying you. And therefore, we would then have to create schedules because we couldn't just pay someone to turn on an app, especially if they're using multiple apps. And then when you go to scheduling, some drivers will not be able to do that. Many drivers are using this in between appointments, in between caring for their kids. And so there would be part of that on their side. And then on our side, with the rigidity of, of employment, there would be a set of benefits that 
are provided to all drivers, whether or not they work for one week, they work for 52 weeks, they work for one hour, they work for 40 hours. And so the rigidity of that would be difficult to work for all drivers. So instead, we've created a system that the more you drive, the more benefits you get. Let me ask about that that thing you said where, you know, if somebody under that rule had somebody turned on an app, even if they weren't getting a ride or maybe they were had another app on in the background, they would have technically been an employee of Lyft at that moment working for Lyft. Can I ask, because the Prop 22, a lot of the benefits, both on the kind of the minimum wage premium and some of the health benefits you mentioned are tied to what's referred to as, quote, engaged time, which is, and correct me if I'm wrong, when you accept a ride, driving to get that person, driving them until the moment they are physically dropped off. I understand if I'm, say, somebody in San Francisco on a Friday night driving, that there's a queue and I'm constantly being able to get rides. I'm wondering how you feel this plays out if I'm somebody, say, maybe further out in the suburbs and I do generally go longer between being able to get a ride. My app is open. I am a Lyft driver. But sometimes it takes five, 10 minutes for something to pop up. Is that person going to be disadvantaged by this? There's no disadvantage by this. Let me rephrase. Not advantaged by it is maybe a better way to put it. Well, no, now there's an earnings guarantee. You had mentioned it. It's 120% of minimum, minimum wage. So while our drivers, you know, the far majority of drivers were already earning more than that, this is the protection. That's unengaged though, right? When we say minimum wage, if I work at a store, whether there's a customer or not, I get that X per hour. This is only effectively if there's a customer for that person. Correct. But that's why it's 120% of minimum wage. We contemplated that there would be some, some waiting and that's why we wanted to go above. It also is not the only amount we can pay. We will pay above that and we need to create a marketplace that incentivizes drivers to want to show up in those areas where it might be more slow. So it's on us to create the economics that makes it worth their while. There's been a lot of talk from you, from some of your rivals about creating a quote unquote third way that labor right now is kind of, you're either an employee or you're a contractor, but maybe gig economy workers, there needs to be a third category. Is Prop 22 and the benefits laid out in Prop 22, is that the third way you imagine and think should be expanded nationally? Yeah, more or less, that's, that's what this is. This is a turning point for this conversation about the future of work. We've felt that there should be the flexibility that comes with being an independent contractor along with benefits. And historically, the way labor law has been written, and by the way, you know, the, the labor fights to get those laws are important and valuable. And I think that that's important to say. As the economy shifts and changes, we should also be able to add benefits for independent contractors without being forced into, without forcing drivers into the rigidity of employment. How do you now go forward? So this happened in California. This is pretty permanent in California. The way this rule is written, I guess, what, seven-eighths of the legislature is needed to overturn it. That was an impressive thing to get into this. Nationally, though, particularly given what it looks like, which is a president-elect Biden and a probably Republican Senate, what happens now? We're ready to work with both parties. We're ready to work with labor leaders. We're ready to work with the industry to say, okay, you know, we've heard from voters. This was decisive. This was a 16% margin, had a bipartisan support from Democrats, Republicans, and independents. And the work is not done. Let's do what's right for drivers. Let's do what's right for the community and create certainty so that we can build more jobs and do it state by state if we need to. It would be easier to do it at the federal level, um, but we're just going to have to see how it plays out. Is there appetite to do it in the federal level? And if so, who's your champion? Like in the Senate, who is the person who would help, from your perspective, bring this through? Because as you well know, both Biden and Kamala Harris, they both oppose 22. Yeah, I would say it would likely be a bipartisan effort. Obviously, as we go into kind of the new government that's forming now, and just generally, this has 
implications for the broad economy, for companies, for labor. And so I would see it as a bipartisan effort at the federal level. It's too early to talk about who specifically. John Zimmer of Lyft, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Welcome back. What we're watching today is Facebook, which is under new criticism about its role in the election, or more specifically, its role after the election. A number of large Facebook groups have sprung up to support President Trump's evidence-free claims that the election was stolen, thus further spreading conspiracy theories and pretty easily debunked misinformation. Now, Facebook has shut some of these groups down, but not all of them. So we asked Axios media reporter Sarah Fisher if this situation was foreseeable. In terms of was it predictable, we knew going into this election that Donald Trump was probably going to contest the outcome. He had suggested for days prior to the election that Democrats were conducting widespread voter fraud. So one could anticipate that these narratives of messages around fake news, voter fraud, et cetera, would come out after the election. I think the problem here, Dan, is we didn't know how it would manifest. We didn't know which hashtags would be popularized. We didn't know which words and which narratives would be viral. And that's where Facebook really sort of messed up. Was it preventable? I mean, Facebook can make decisions to take down as much content as it wants. The problem is it doesn't want to take action on so much content because it wants to be the arbiter of free speech. Today, we're also watching the European Union, which filed antitrust charges against Amazon. At issue is the e-commerce giant's practice of using data from sellers on its marketplace to develop its own Amazon-branded products, something the EU believes is anti-competitive. The upshot for Amazon could be billions of dollars in fines and a playbook for U.S. antitrust regulators. And finally, 2020 is now the most active hurricane season in history, thanks to a new storm named Hurricane Theta that's forming in the Atlantic Ocean. Now, this one isn't expected to make landfall, unlike Hurricane Ada, which hit Florida yesterday, but it is the record breaker, bringing the 2020 tally to 29 named storms. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Shovers and Naomi Shaven. Have a great National Vanilla Cupcake Day. Be sure to take your Bam Lan EV mob. And we'll be back Thursday with another Axios Recap. <laughs>